If you are smart, you might run into this problem where people underestimate you and your ideas because you are not delivering them with the right competence and warmth. So I heard this idea so resonated with me, which when you look at a swan on a lake, it looks so peaceful, right? The swan is beautiful and elegant and gliding and everything's great and perfect, right? <laughs> yeah. But underneath the water, the swan is like, <laughs> you know, like paddling for furiously. Yeah. It's murky under there. The water is kind of dirty. They're paddling for their life. Mm. And I was like, that at least feels like me or I don't know other, most other female business owners I know where we're, we're trying to be this perfect swan, right? Mm. But underneath it all, we're wearing Spanx. We're trying to hold it in. We're paddling for our lives. Mm. And I was like, why aren't we talking about the murk? Why aren't we talking about the chaos? Why aren't we talking about the paddling for our lives? So when I go to a networking event, there, no, I walk in and I feel a little awkward. Yeah. You know, I walk in and I'm like, oh, there's the cool kids and I'm going the other way. Yeah. Right? Like, do you still do that now? Yes. Interesting. And I think that it's so unfair to say to people, oh no, I never feel awkward. Mm. I'm done feeling awkward. And that's unfortunately what we do, I think, a lot of the times as women is we set ourselves up to think, oh, yeah, you know, I have it all figured out. I never feel nervous. I never feel anxious. I'm confident all the time. So the flip side of trying to show up confident is also how do we say, yeah, I can be confident, but I also had to really work to get it. Mm. Right? Like I, before I walked into an event, I had to think of conversation starters before I walked right. in. When I walked in that event, I kind of scanned the room of like, don't belong there, don't belong there, maybe I could belong there. Interesting. Okay, so why do we do that? Like trying to find where we belong and slip in unnoticed. I think it's because part of our personalities as humans is notice me, notice me, notice me. And part of our personality is I just want to feel like I belong. And what's interesting is um, there was a research study done by Van Sloan, and he looked at the question of what makes popular kids popular. Mm. Now, as a not popular kid, I'm very fascinated by popular yeah, kids. Yeah, Okay? So can you guess? He studied thousands of popular kids across a number of different high schools. Okay. And uh, popular kids and unpopular kids, looking for the differences. Mm. What do you think was the biggest difference between unpopular and popular kids? Size and age. Good guess. Actually, it was similar to my guess. My yeah. guess was attractiveness. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, I, which I, actually should have been my first guess. Uh, but size is similar, right? Like, I thought it was something physical. Right. I thought, you know, the yeah. more attractive the guy was, the more yeah. attractive the girl was, right. the more happy she was. No, it wasn't that. The kids were the most liked if they liked the most other people. Meaning, huh. you are in control of how many people like you because you like the most other people. Wow. So hmm. why, and this resonated with me, I had to really think about it because if you think about a popular kid, they are actually initiating the likability. Yeah. They smiled the most at other kids in hallways. Hmm. Not the other way around. Not that people smiled at them the most. Right. They smiled the most at other people. Huh. Because they liked more other people. They counted more people amongst their friends and they liked those people. And what this shows is if you're walking into a party and your entire goal in that offer mentality is how can I like more people at this event? That's a very unique goal because it's different than the goal that most people have, which is how can I be the most impressive? How can I get people to like me? Right. The flip yeah. side of that is I want to like everyone here. How can I find a reason to like you? 
that's Love a that. very different way to approach it. And so I think that what happens is in, in parties, if we go in thinking, are people going to like me? Mm-hmm. Are they going to like me? It actually sets you up to be less likable. That's interesting. As the opposite, whereas the cool kid, the most confident person in the room is going, I like you, mm-hmm. I like you, I like you, I like you. I like you, I like you, I like you, I like you, I like you. Right? That's a very different mentality shift, and that's why that happens. You should stop focusing on being more impressive. You should stop thinking about how to tell the funniest story or being more likable. And you should focus on how can you get other people to impress you. Huh. How do you do that? So I was um, asked to do a panel at a conference, okay. and um, I didn't have much time to prepare for the panel. And I went into the green room and I had to basically very quickly figure out enough about each person in the room to introduce them. Because if you're doing a panel, you're in charge of introducing each person. So I I go into the green room and my entire goal is just impress me. Mm. Whereas if I had gone into that green room, and they were all big VIPs, right? If I had gone into that green room thinking, I better be impressive. Mm. I better tell a funny story. I better really give good answers. The conversation would have been awful. Don't think about the impressive story you can tell. It's more, what questions could you ask if you had to introduce this person to another VIP in 10 minutes? Mm. What questions would you ask to get them to impress you? Yeah. It's a really simple kind of mentality switch, but I also think it gets you out of your own head. And if that's a problem, it's a problem for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It kind of gets you out of your head because you're it's like, impress me. Yeah. Tell me everything amazing about you. Also, people, I think, love to be heard. Yeah. And so when someone's listening... Yeah. And someone's telling you the story, you're like, wow, they're really interested in my story. And it, so it makes yeah. you warm towards them more. For sure. And if you're listening with such intensity that you want to go introduce them later, like that mental hack uh-huh. is important. It wasn't just get them to tell you an impressive story. It was pretend that you're going to introduce them to someone important. Mm-hmm. So the only caveat here would be is if you're meeting with a VIP, don't ask them the questions that they get asked on panels. Yeah. Don't ask them the questions that they've been asked to interviews because then you're going to immediately flip them into autopilot, right? They're going to immediately go into their podcast mode, their autopilot mode. Yeah, that's so interesting because you want to connect with them. Mm -hmm. And so you think that by asking them the questions that you're connecting. um, So I actually bumped one of my Mm. biggest people that I've always wanted to interview me in my life, Jodie Foster. So I went to film school. I studied her. My dissertation was on her. Um, what she's done in film is incredible and so I admire her so much and I bumped into her once what? In, in like Starbucks and there was no one around and so I was like, this is my chance. <laughs> my instinct was to just like, oh my God, oh my God. Gush. Oh my God. Yeah, gush. And then I, I like took a deep breath and I was like, okay, what do I really feel? Like yeah. instead of trying to just like impress her, yeah. what do I actually feel mm. about her? And yeah. just say that. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I just had to tell you. I wrote a dissertation on you, and what you've done in film is incredible. And her first um, movie that she directed, Little Man Tay, I was like, was incredible. Yeah. And when I say she flipped on a dime, mm. as soon as I was like, what you've done in film and for females and, mentioning and Little Man first, Tay, but, yeah. which was her passion project. Right. So immediately right. I saw a total shift in her. Yeah. And I got like, she was like really sweet and warming and just that one little way of approaching it made all the difference. It flipped her. So what you're talking about, I always, I like nicknames for things, you know, I love naming yeah, things. Yeah. So anything like that, I call like a hot button. So a passion project, a hot button is something that you can hopefully um, tap into or push on. Mm-hmm. I literally think of it's like an on or off mm-hmm. switch when you're with an influencer or a VIP or anyone is is there a topic, a word, uh, a question you can ask where they just can't stop talking about it? Sometimes it's themselves. 
Sometimes that works. Which is okay. You. If you know someone who has that kind <laughs> yeah. of ego, great. That's yeah. easy. You can ask anything about themselves. But sometimes it's a, it's an, a more interesting, unique topic. Mm. And so that, if you're approaching a VIP, doing the right kind of research, like for example, I love doing not just Google research, but like looking to see if they have a public Amazon wish list mm. or looking to see if they have a public Goodreads profile to see what they're reading. So clever. So there's other things that you can look at that are not just Google related. Yeah. Um, you can try to find those hot buttons because mm -hmm. once you do that, you flip them out of autopilot, mm -hmm. right? Does that work with, let's say, dating or friendships? So first dates are the only, not, they're not an exception to the rule, but okay. yes, finding hot buttons for dates, for friendships is great. Mm -hmm. What you can do is do a little bit of pre-research ahead of time. And I like to be transparent about it, but you also can do this on the date. So it might not be like, for example, um, it might not be on a first date being like, so I searched you on um, Goodreads, Audible, <laughs> Amazon, and right, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't go in saying that. <laughs> Because <laughs> that might tear them. But what you could say is, you know, like, I love looking at people's um, Goodreads. Do you have an account? What are you reading? Right. So you can just ask them that mm. question without having to go do it. Yeah. Um, and you can all, that's how you can look for hot buttons. Yeah. It's like, so, like, are you obsessed with Netflix show, right? shows right now? You know, um, like, like, what's your, what are you reading right now on Goodreads or Audible? Do you like auto, do you like audiobooks? Right, like, you can start yeah. to say like that. Mm -hmm. I, just asking them about it is better. On a first date. Yeah. On a first date, I think it's a little bit, a little bit safer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a little bit safer. Um, so talk to me about radical transparency. Oh, goodness. Yes. Talking about dating or just in general, me and my husband live by that rule, radical yeah. transparency. Yeah. But I love your take on, on, like, how you approach it. And So I think that the problem is that in most of our relationships, we feel like we have to uh, people please, make nice nice, or um, protect who we really are. Do you find that's more typical in women? Yeah, I do. Really? So I think that from a very young age, women are often taught appeasement. And this is a very big concept in body language. So I study body language a lot. And you'll notice that women do more appeasement body language. Mm -hmm. We nod more, we eyebrow raise more, we smile more. Mm. We smile, we smile I just touched more. your hand yes, earlier exactly, as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're taught that body language mm. from a very young age. Um, and I have a young baby, and I see this now all the time, where women will encourage, men and women will encourage female babies to do more smiling, touching, and playing together. Whereas men and women, I don't know if they realize it, encourage more male babies to explore, to play, to touch, to hold, to lift, to build. Mm. It's very interesting. Uh, and I just watched this in play maths, in classes with friends. I thought to myself, talk about priming. If you're a baby, a female baby, and you're told from a young age over and over again, play nicely, mm -hmm. be gentle, play nice, smile, say hi, smile, wave, give her a kiss, blow her a kiss, hug. Okay? So true. My female baby is told those things all the time by everyone who meets her. Whereas my very good friend has a male baby just two months older, and he is told all day long, also play nice and be gentle, but mm -hmm. also, oh, show us, you're so strong, build, look how fast you are, you're already standing, crawling so good. The words he is hearing directed at him on an hourly basis are very different than the words that my daughter is hearing. But when you talk about priming from that young of age, when you have adults, fully grown adults, and you're telling them, set up a boundary for yourself, say no, they're hearing, be gentle, play nice, be cooperative, nice, smile, nod. 
So it's, it's, we're actually going, I think, against some of our programming. Mm. And that is very, very challenging, especially when you don't know if you're going to get backlash from that no. Yeah. And so saying no is a skill. It's a skill that as women, as men, we have to hone that skill. and We have to get good at it. Saying no is unapologetically saying no, not giving a reason. And this is a really hard one for women. I do it all the time. I do this all the time too. You're right. I do this all the time too. Like I was telling you about an event that I wanted to go to tonight. And um, this was a big big open event for um, women influencers. I did not owe anyone an explanation. But when I wrote back, I was like, I'm so sorry, I can't come, I have family dinner. I should not have done that. You even told me that as well. You said that to me. (laughs) Like three times. (laughs) I know. Because I felt like I had to. And I'm trying to break that. Mm. And so the way that we, the best way to do this. Why are you trying to break it? The reason is because if you give a reason, it invites someone to question your reason. Hmm. So think Mm. about the difference. Mm. Okay. If you have a pushy friend, they actually will argue with you. It's a Friday night. You're exhausted. You had a really long week. Your friend of a friend is having a birthday party in a nightclub. They really wanted to come. And you're like, I am not about this. I don't want to go to a nightclub. I don't want to spend a lot of money. I don't want to wear my heels. I'd rather be in Netflix at home and cuddle with my dog. Yes. Okay? So you want to say no. If you just say, I hope you have a great night. I'm so sorry I can't attend. That's the correct way to say no. You offer a kindness and you just say no. You don't offer any reasons. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, I'm so sorry I can't go. I've just had a really hard work week. If you have a pushy friend who's not good with boundaries, they're going to write and be right back and say, but this is a way to blow off steam from the week. First drinks on me. And then you're like, oh, and your boundary is pushed. And then you have to do it again. So you're better off getting, breaking your habit of not giving a reason, which is so hard. I still struggle with it because that way it, it invites people to respect your boundaries more and also sets you up to not have to do it over and over again. And we don't have to give a reason to give a boundary. Yeah. Like I give you full permission to not give a reason if you want to set up a boundary. You're allowed to say no just for the sake of saying no. Mm-hmm. And the third option, by the way, when I, with the steps, I have a formula for saying no. So it's um, offer something nice, say no, do not offer a reason. And your option is to offer an alternative. Okay. So you could say, have a great night. I hope you have a wonderful birthday. I'm so sorry I can't attend. If you want to go to brunch the next morning, I would love to do that with her. Right. If you want to. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Really simple. And if you have trouble saying no, if, uh, if you're watching and you're like, I really have trouble, never, ever agree to anything in person. And the reason for mm-hmm. this is because it's incredibly hard to say no to someone's face. It's much easier when you go back, you look at your calendar, and you write a text because you can really think about your wording. Yeah. So what I always say to my high people pleasers, my recovering people pleasers out there, <laughs> is just get in the habit, even if you know you're going to say yes, of not saying yes in person. Mm-hmm. Always, always default to, let me check my calendar and get back to you. Hey, let me check my phone and get back to you. Hey, let me email you when I get to work. Because then, whether it is a yes or whether it is a no, you're giving your, your, your default answer is always, I'm going to have to take a minute. Mm-hmm. And that sets you up for um, an easier no later. And by the way, like if you have a lot of things going on, I've never experienced this more than now. When you have a little one, when you have a thousand business things going on, you have to default to that because you really do have to go check your calendar. Mm-hmm, right. Against your partner's calendar, right. against your board calendar. <laughs> yeah. I have four calendars going on yeah. at all times. Like you have to be able to balance it out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So you yeah. recently had a baby. I did, yes. And for about nine, it feels like more than nine months, but you yeah. completely stopped posting on social media. Yeah. I saw, you know, a few photos, couple. a yeah. couple of here and there. Yeah. Um, 
And I realized when it happened that it was very conscious on your part. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Because that's one thing I talk about and battle with myself. Um, mm-hmm. I don't battle anymore, but that was one thing that I struggled with when Tom and I were contemplating, do we have children or not? Yeah. And it really was, what would my life look like if yeah. I had a child? Yeah. Could I switch off? Would I want to switch off? Mm-hmm. Will I feel withdrawal f- symptoms from switching yeah. off? And then also part of me was worried that I, I didn't want to resent the child for sure for me switching off. Yeah. Um, did you go through any of that? All of it. Oh, okay. All of it for sure. Um, so I think that the biggest question when we're talking about when, when I was thinking about becoming a mother was all those questions plus where would my motivation be? Mm. Right? Like before having a baby, I was so motivated to help people succeed in my business achieve business goals. I had a business bucket list, right? All these things. Mm. And I worried that I would have a baby and my motivation would either be split in half or taken completely. And I was like, what will my business look like if I'm not motivated to do it anymore? Right? Like I, that was a huge question mark. And so what I had to be okay with was, would my business survive without me being motivated? Could I do it as a job? Because my, my, my business is my passion. Mm. It's my career. I love it. And I realized, yes, if I had to, I could do my business as a job. Mm. I could write a post every week. I could do a video every week. I could do that. So that would be okay. But I would have to take some space to reevaluate what were my motivations. I realized that I thought that being a mom was the most adult thing you could do in the world. (laughs) Right? There is no bigger I'm an adult than having a baby and becoming a parent. So I kind of thought that that was the ultimate in adultness. What I didn't realize is the moment you have a baby, it's actually extremely regressive. And this makes me think about motherhood in a very different way. So if you think about it when you're pregnant or you're even thinking about having children, you're at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Maslow's hierarchy Mm -hmm. of needs, if you've seen it, you know, it's like shelter, food, water, um, uh, companionship, and then it gets higher. It's like goals and motivations, self-esteem and confidence. The very top is the most esoteric kind of thinking ones. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about having children, you're at the top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. You have the means emotionally, financially, time-wise to be able to think about having children. When you're pregnant, all you're doing is thinking in that very top part of the triangle. What do I want to teach my child? Mm -hmm. What's the meaning of life? What do I want this baby to feel and be? Right, You're at the very top. The moment you have that baby, you go to the very bottom of the triangle. What I mean by that is all of a sudden, all that matters is can I get enough to eat? Can I get enough sleep? Am I drinking enough water? Repeat, repeat, repeat. So true. And so in the first few weeks of motherhood, how do you survive going from such heady, beautiful thoughts to survival, Mm. right? To very aggressive. You are taking care of a baby, but all of a sudden you just went to your baby needs. What does baby need? Food, shelter, sleep, and to be changed. Mm. That's it. What do you do as a new time mom? It's just those four things. So all of a sudden, you're a baby, they're a baby, and you're both doing everything for the first time. Wow, that never dawned on me. And for an A-type controlaholic, it's terrifying. Yeah. Because I don't like being new at things. I don't like not knowing how to do things. I don't like going back to basics. And so that was really, really hard. All of a sudden feeling like I was a baby myself 
and all my needs went right back to the bottom of the triangle. Wow. Did you recognize that in the moment? I did. Wow. I recognized in the moment where I was like, all I can do in a day is sleep, eat, poop. That's it. That's all I got. And the same thing my daughter can do is sleep, eat, poop. Whoa. (laughs) Like, Like, that was like really hard. That was the first thing that was going on. And the second thing that I didn't realize was you're mourning the death of an old life as you celebrate the birth of a new life. Mm -hmm. And so in those first few weeks, you're having these amazing moments of celebration of life, of wow, like this new creature, but you're also mourning the death of your old life that you love. Used to be, yeah. Like it's gone Mm -hmm. for a long time. You might get back if you're an empty nester. And so it's very weird that in also the same moment you're doing mourning and celebrating. And so I think that my biggest concern was being able to find myself again. Mm. And it's been incredible because I feel like I'm climbing back up the hierarchy. And that's really amazing. Right? Like I, I was at the top of the hierarchy, yeah. right? I had grown up to be yeah. an adult. I had figured my business out. Like, but now I'm getting myself back up the triangle. She's seven months old. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, starting to sleep again, mm-hmm. still nursing, but starting to sleep again. And it's like, okay, I hit the next level. I'm starting to think about motivations for her, goals for her. There's no better climb than that in a weird way. So you're enjoying the climb. Yes, okay. I'm enjoying the climb now that I've passed that first, <laughs> the, the basics. Yeah. Once you're getting sleep again, it's like, oh, like I can find this new life again. I'm climbing back up the value ladder, which is incredibly fulfilling in a totally different way that I didn't expect. So th- those two aspects mm. of being a parent, I never... I never thought about before, but I think it's something that I wish someone had prepared me for. I love Shark Tank. So Shark Tank is a show where entrepreneurs go and pitch a panel of sharks or investors to invest in their business. It's a great show to watch cues. And so my research team and I were curious, what makes a successful pitch? All of these are good ideas. All of these are successful people. They wouldn't make it on the tank if they weren't. Why is it that some get a deal and some don't? And they're big deals. They're not little deals. Mm. So what my research partner, Jose Pina, and I did, thank you, Jose, for researching all these talks, is we did, he analyzed 495 pitches on Shark Tank. 495 pitches on Shark Tank. 495 pitches on Shark Tank. Okay, it's a lot of pitches. It's a lot of pitches. And we coded on as many variables as we could think of because we didn't know what we were going to look for. So we looked at hand gestures and smiling and inflection and space and inner, everything we could think of to see if we could find patterns. And one of the ones we noticed during this coding was Jamie Siminoff's pitch. So Jamie Siminoff is the founder of Ring. Um, I use Ring on my own doorbell. It is a massively successful company on millions of homes around the world. And it was acquired by Amazon for over a billion dollars with a B, right? What most people don't know is that he almost ruined his company and had a failed Shark Tank pitch. And this is someone who eventually got funding from Shaq and Richard Branson, but yet he could not get a deal in the Shark Tank. And the reason for this is even though it was a great idea, he shared it with the wrong cues. So what he did is he chose to go into the tank and close the doors. Now, if you ever watch Shark Tank, there's a really important part of Shark Tank where you watch the entrepreneur walk down the shark tank. And that is actually a critical piece of our first impression. The reason for this is because of the four space zones. And that's because when we are getting to know someone, we want to see them come into our personal space. Mm. So these pitchers would walk down the hallway and they would come into the tank and they would stand on the carpet and they would say, hi sharks, I'm here to pitch you a deal. What Simonoff did, and he made a 
uh, not a great choice with this. I don't know if it was the producer's fault or not. He closed the doors to the tank and he knocked on the shark tank door. And he said, hello, it's Jamie. And he went up at the end of his, his name. When we ask our own name, it is the fastest and biggest way that we give away our power. It's like saying to someone, I'm so not confident in myself that I'm going to ask you my own name. I'm going to ask you permission. So he says, knock, 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 it's Jamie. And Mark Cuban goes, you know, hi. And he says, here to pitch. So he used two question inflections in the first few seconds of hearing him. And that immediately gave away his competence. It made them doubt him. And he had a really hard time taking, having those sharks take him seriously. They would not take his deal seriously. And they eventually excused him from the tank. And I think it was all in those first few seconds. That question inflection is so, so powerful. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easier easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. I love that so much because that really does drive home exactly what you're saying. It's not about all the other like 
the, the big totality of yeah. sometimes it can be these tiny tiny freaking minute things and it's not about what he was trying to sell because like you just said it was a billion dollar company yeah so it's a great idea a product, it's a great idea yes so it's not even about the product it, it is the delivery and the delivery then makes something either a smash success or it ends up being, you know, 20 years later, you're like, I had this idea for a ring yes. thing and I didn't get a funding, so. And this is, I think, the Jamie Siminoff is incredibly intelligent. He's right. incredibly smart. He had an incredible idea. And so this is the problem, again, smart people suffer with this. This is not a problem of people mm. who aren't smart enough. This is actually the problem of people who are too smart. Very, very smart people, they prep for an interview or negotiation or a presentation and they prep their ideas. They want their ideas to be amazing, right? They're pitching to their boss or their team. They, want, they have their dream job and they're like, I have to have the perfect answer. And so they script out the perfect answer and they go in there and they're blindsided. They don't know why they're giving the perfect answers, but people are on their computer checking their email. <laughs> they're not getting any nods or any... Uh, smiles or any leans or not seeing any of those warmth cues and they're like what's going on and that's just like Jamie Siminoff if you are smart you might run into this problem where people underestimate you and your ideas because you are not delivering them with the right competence and warmth yeah oh my god it's so powerful it really yeah. is um, you actually mentioned space zone yeah I really want to go okay. into this because I it was like the first time I'd really heard about how you, you break it down yeah so this is I also when I read this science and this is research that I was like Oh, this is happening invisibly. It feels like there are these invisible rules mm -hmm. that are happening in our interactions that we're not aware of and that we accidentally trip over or break. So one of my <laughs> goals with this is like no more invisible. Like let's make them invisible cues. So here's one of them, which is that there are four space zones. The fancy word for this is proxemics. If you want to get fancy, yeah. <laughs> um, and so this is across genders and cultures and races, although that there are some cultural differences between exactly how big each are, but there are still four zones. They are the public zone, which is further than seven feet away. So further from seven feet away from someone, you can't really see their facial expressions that well. You kind of have to speak up for them to hear you. Mm. That's considered the public zone. Strangers, we like them to stay in our public zone where they can't reach out and hurt us. They're, we can't really see them very closely. They kind of keep their distance. The next zone is called the social zone. The social zone is around uh, three or four feet to seven feet. This is where we can see facial expressions. We can talk pretty easily. This is where we spend like networking events or at bars and clubs. We might be sitting near someone in that zone. The next zone is the personal zone. The personal zone is about a foot and a half to three feet away. Again, a little bit different based on culture. That's where we really have deep conversations. This is the perfect distance for us to have a deep conversation. If I were closer to you, I would be in, my int in your intimate zone. Mm. Your intimate zone is 18 inches away from you, and that would be way too close, right? That's like pre-kissing, yeah. right? When you're in yeah. the 18-inch zone, you're too close. The problem is, is that we are messing this up digitally in what I call mm. digital close talking. Mm. Have you ever had a close talker? <laughs> Most older people, all you oh, see is I like their, they're like the mm. mouth, and they're like, it's, but it's... <laughs> and they talk mouth. into your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, they're like, they're literally like, hello, I know. So yes, so close talkers, uh, if you watch the Jerry Seinfeld episode, close talking, you might be familiar with this. But now what's happening is what I call digital close talking. So in real life, we're kind of vaguely aware of these zones. I know not to walk up into your intimate space. But digitally, what's happening is we're hopping on video and the camera is 18 inches from our face. And so all of a sudden, our very first impression is, whoa, 
-hmm. we're in someone's zone. And we don't know why. Have you ever had like that awkward, uh, at the start of a video call, we were mm -hmm. like, I'm on camera. It's probably because either you are too close to your camera or they are too close to their camera. Instinctively, your brain goes too close, too close, too close, awkward, awkward, awkward. And you'll notice, and I've seen this on video calls, people will hop on too close and there's like this, oh, uh, hi. And they both sit back and they're like, so how's it going? It's like they had to get out of that zone. So please, please, please measure the distance between the tip of your nose to your camera. I love how precise you are. I mean, let's get yeah, precise, yeah, right? Yeah. So like measure the tip of your nose to your camera mm. and make sure you are at least 18 inches away. If you are taking selfies, just keep in mind, closer than 18 inches away is intimate. So if you are on a dating profile, you might want that, mm. right? You might want something that's up and close and personal intimate. That is going to send off intimate signals. If you are like just getting to know someone, if it's a profile picture, LinkedIn profile picture, if you're farther away, so this is more than 18 inches away, this is going to be more casual. That you'll notice it when people are doing like personal, you know, Snapchats or Instagrams or TikToks, they're right up here, they're yeah. really close, they're telling you how it is. But when they're a little further away, hey guys, just want to tell you about a morning smoothie, <laughs> right? It's farther away. So we are aware of these, but I want you to use them to your advantage. And I also want you to use them for decoding. So we're talking about decoding people. Yeah. See how close people get to you. Are they sending you videos and pictures here or here? When they walk up to you at a, in a meeting or in a bar, at a restaurant, are they planting at four feet away? Do they want to sit next to you on the table? Are they coming into your intimate space to give you a hug or a cheek kiss and then staying in the personal zone? That is going to indicate to you how close they are and how close they want to get. Mm. So it's a really great tool for decoding, actually. Yeah, that's so, I love that you said that. And then, um, that the kind of makes me then think of something else you talk about, which is fronting. Yes. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, also like the, if you sit next to somebody versus mm -hmm. like, because that's the thing, right? On dates, it's like, yeah. do you sit next to you, the person you're dating or yeah. do you sit opposite the person you're okay. dating? Okay, so this is a couple different things. Like, let's unpack them because those are actually really, really good questions. They can affect your entire date. Mm. And I actually looked into, there's a lot of research on seating, so we can talk about yes, seating. Yes, please. I know. I love this subject so much. It matters. Yes. It matters. Okay, so first fronting, which I love. So fronting is sort of a side cue to space. And the reason for this is because fronting is when we angle our body towards the person we're talking with. So yes. if we're fully fronting our toes, our torso and our heads are fully in alignment, yes. right? You would know. Now, by the way, we don't do the interview like this as much because then it kind of is exclusive. Yeah. It's not as inclusive to everyone. That's the only reason why, because I way prefer facing someone head on than I do like at the side, but it's... But that, but that, I just think this is, this is what's interesting is the way that you have your chairs angled, the way that we're set up is actually beautiful because I'm saying when I really want to talk to you, I'll angle the top of me towards mm. you. And then I'll also kind of angle out towards the cameras. It's actually a way of being inclusive. If we did the entire interview like this, everyone would feel really left out, oh, right? You. We don't want to feel left, we don't want to feel left out. So when you're in an important interaction and you want them to feel like you are there and you also want to decode, are they really on the same page as me? Watch their toes, watch their toes. When we are really into someone, um, anecdotally, we found that we can usually predict office crushes we can, not always anecdotally, <laughs> I can usually go to a, like a Christmas party or like a work party and by looking at people's toes, I can usually tell where the office crushes are. And that is because when we have a crush on someone, 
We want to be fully engaged with them, so we point our toes towards that person, and that's what we want to move towards. Mm. Right? When we're walking towards something, we angle our toes towards them. So in a good interaction on Shark Tank, someone starts in the public zone, they walk, into the per walk through the social zone, walk into the personal zone, and in a really good pitch, they reach over and they hand out tasty treats, they reach over and hand out samples. We actually found that interactivity was the number one predictor of what pitch would go well. And I think it had to do with fronting and space. Mm -hmm. Is it if the person remained on the carpet the whole time, they were always in the social zone. It's really hard to connect with someone deeply and trust them and give them your money if they're in the social zone. So the really good pitchers would have some reason to cross over into the shark zone. Mm -hmm. So they would be like, oh, you know, here, here's a puppy for you, or you know, <laughs> here's a salsa for you to taste, or here's a cupcake for you. And they'd walk into their shark's intimate zone, hand them something, and if you watch on camera, they'll actually lean down front with them and say, here you go, Barbara, here, Lori, here, Kevin, for a brief moment of full fronting, right, full alignment, and also a real brief moment in that intimate zone. And I think that those sharks were literally like, ah, oh, this person, I trust them enough to be close to me. I'm much more likely to get engaged with them. Yeah. I, I, so yeah, so fronting space zones, right? So to show engagement, angle your toes towards the person you're with. The most important person in the room, a boss, a VIP, angle your toes towards them, even if you're across the room. And if you want to know if someone is very into you <laughs> or aligned with you, watch their toes. It's not a great date if someone is angled out and this always makes me really nervous when I love my, my husband and I sit at restaurants and like, you know, are creepy like, and we yeah. like watch everyone. We like guess. We have a game yeah, where we guess. We do you know? too. Are they right? in their fourth date? Yeah, 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 exactly. And so like, like are their fifth date? Are they friends? Are they siblings? Is yeah. it going well? Is it not going well? We love doing it. And one of the easiest ways to tell if a date's going well or not is if someone is, you know, angled away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're just giving you head attention. Their body and their feet are looking somewhere else. They are not fully engaged with you. It is a sign of nonverbal respect to say, I'm gonna angle my entire body towards you. This also can happen if you're on a date or you're in an interaction and you say something that made someone disengage. Mm. So if you say something that makes them nervous, like, you know, and I really, really wanna have a family, I really wanna have children. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've always, I've always, I've thought about kids too. And they shift the body. And they shift their body oh. out in a way that's a literal mm. signal that we can't control, a listening cue, right? If someone's like, oh, mm. and it shakes them out, that, that somehow disengaged them or made them just a little bit nervous. And so you also want to look for sudden not fronting or, or distancing. It's called distancing um, for looking at the actual cue. So the one thing that actually you do talk about, though, is also context. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, some people may go, okay, I've watched the episode. I've read, <laughs> you know, Vanessa Van Edward's book cues. I got this shit. Yeah. I know. Oh, my God. Their toes aren't towards me. Screw that. I'm not going on a second date. They weren't <laughs> no. interested. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Yes. 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 So first of all, always give someone the nonverbal benefit of the doubt. Right. So <laughs> there's actually research on this. Um, there's the, I think we talked about this last time, the Pollyanna effect. Mm. It's always better mm. to assume good. Yes. So I do want to say that first is this is not about gotcha moments. It's actually the more you can assume good in people and good intentions, the more accurate you are. The second thing is there are 96 cues in the book. So we maybe talked about eight. Yeah. Right? So this is good, right? But there are a lot of cues. And 96 cues isn't even all of the cues. Like I had to cut cues because it was just too long. So first is there's a lot uh, packed into all those signals. We also want to look at context and clusters. 
those two C's that protect us. Mm -hmm. Context and clusters protect us as decoders. If you want to be really accurate at reading people, you have to focus on context and clusters. So context very simply is, what is the context you're in? So for example, if you're in a loud bar or nightclub and it's, people can't hear you, they might lean in to hear you. That might not be a warmth cue, <laughs> right? Yeah. They literally might be like, what was that? And you're like, oh, head tilt, lean in, he likes me. Yeah. But he is just contextually leaning in to hear you, right? So you always want to think, is there a reason this could be happening contextually? Um, if someone suddenly distanced, did their best friend just walk in the room, right? Do they need the waiter? Mm. Are they looking for a drink? Do they have to go potty? So always think about context. What is another explanation, especially if it's a negative cue? Mm. If you've seen a negative cue, is there any benefit of the doubt I can give them for context? Can I tell you something that I do now? Yes. Because I, this is really like... Um, made my radar yeah. of the, you know, the crossing of the arms, right? Yeah, and, you yeah. know, now at this point, we know that crossing the arms is kind of like, well, this, I'm protecting my closed. space, closed mm -hmm. off. Yes. But you even say in the book, what if it's freaking cold? So the funny thing, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I actually realized what I start doing. If I cross my arms because I'm cold, I say it out loud. Yes. I'm like, oh, it's actually quite chilly. Yes. And now people know I'm not being like closed off. Yes, yes, yes. So the other power here, the confidence here, is if you know what cues mean, you can say to people what you mean. Mm. Right? So yes. Oh my goodness, it's cold. It's chilly. Right, you can actually say that to someone. Right. Or like you can give explanation for your cues. Or like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm having a bad day. So if I have, you know, RBF today, that's why. Right, you can literally say that to people. Mm. And I do say that to people. So yes, that is super powerful and that there's a beauty in sharing why you know the cues you're sending, right? Okay, so if you know your own contacts, think of other contacts, always give someone the benefit of the doubt. The last one to protect ourselves as decoder is looking for a cluster. Mm. So a cluster is you never take one cue by itself, right? If you take one cue by itself, it could be anything, right? Like if someone touches their nose, it could be they have allergies or there's a fuzz on their nose or they just have an itch, right? It's because when we talked about um, deception last yeah. time, right? We no touch our nose. nose. But someone might have allergies. So it's the same thing with any other nonverbal cue is, I, you notice I mentioned like five warmth cues mm. and I mentioned like five danger zone cues because I don't want you to look at a cue by itself, mm. right? So we're looking for the combo, the cluster of nod, smile, eyebrow raise, um, flex lid. We're looking for all those together. That signals, yes, like I'm having a warm interaction. Same thing with danger zone cues. Ah, I saw a lip purse and a distancing behavior, and they disengaged. Oh shoot, they used the question inflection. I need, I need to dig deeper, mm. right? And there's actually a, a last C, which is just confirmation. Can you confirm it? Oh yeah. Can you verbally confirm? All good? You okay? Are you sure you feel that way? Right, the last one. I love that. Is that the same as, because I've heard you say contempt, is uh, one of those ones where we actually very often misread. And, you know, the contempt is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's you right. know, it's just, it is literally the danger to every um, relationship. <sighs> Man, contempt is a really good one. Th these C's are especially important for contempt because contempt, you have to make sure you're actually seeing it and what, why you're seeing it. So contempt, very simply, universally, is a one-sided mouth raise. So if someone just smirks their mouth, either side, right? Yeah. Kind of like a, it's like a smirk. Mm. If you try this, by the way, and tap into how you feel, really intuitive people will actually feel kind of better than. Like, yeah, mm. all right, whatever. It's like a better than, it's like a scorn, disdain, it's, it's negative. The problem is most people think of the contempt smirk as okay. 
mm. or half happiness. I see so many profile pictures where people are like, mm. Mm. I'm like, well, what are you doing? You're showing contempt by accident because it's, it's like apathetic. It's like mm. kind of look cool. But actually, it's an incredibly negative cue. In our body language quiz, we have a body language quiz where we have people just um, test themselves on facial expressions. Contempt is the number one cue people get wrong. Number one cue. And they usually think it's boredom. And it's the opposite of boredom. So what Dr. John Gottman found, and this is like the most incredible, one of the most incredible research experiments in the book, I think. Dr. John Gottman is a marriage and family counselor in Seattle, and he looked at married couples. And he wanted to know why couples stay together and why couples get divorced, and can you predict it? So he brought couples into his love lab, and he tested them on everything he could think of. So from body language to answers to history to health to children to where they lived to economic status, he looked at everything he could think of. And he found that there was only one single indicator of divorce, that couples who showed contempt, only one member of the couple had to do it, during the initial intake interview, were 93% likely to get divorced. 93%. So if one member of the couple in the initial intake interview went, mm-hmm, that's my wife. Ah, oh, I see. Or uh, she's really uh, anal, yeah, really uh, obsessive compulsive. And I showed that little contempt. Contempt is the only emotion that doesn't go away. So why this is such a predictor of divorce is because most of our emotions, and this is important to know as decoders, most emotions fade quickly. Happiness comes in a burst and then you go back to normal. Fear comes all at once and you self-soothe. Anger comes and you calm yourself down. But contempt, it's like a, it sits and it festers. Contempt or disrespect or hatred, if you feel better than someone, feel that better than, and it's not addressed, it grows and it grows and then you can't even look at your spouse for doing that. You get annoyed with everything they do. That's what that seed of contempt is. And so if you see contempt on someone's face, CCC, is it a cluster? What's the context? Is there any other reason they could feel contempt? And lastly, confirm. I had an experience recently that I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. I was going to this event. I was had to fly all the way to Vegas. I was only there for three hours. Oh. I literally went for the event only. Yeah. And so on the way there, I'm like, I don't normally go up to people and just chit chat with them. That's right. not my personality. I'm the awkward person standing in the corner Been waiting there. for someone to talk <laughs> to me. Been there, yeah. <laughs> but going now, I was like, I've taken a whole day off work. I've traveled all the way there. I'm paying my expenses. Mm -hmm. I better make it worth it. Yeah. So I walk in. And I'm just awkward. And so I just walk up to people and I'm just like, hi. And I'm just smiling. Yes, and yes. and I, I figured it out. But you have such great tips on how to deal with awkwardness. Because yeah. I'm sure everyone at home listening right now has been in those situation. It doesn't have to be business. It could be a family, meeting the in-laws yeah. for the first time. Right? Anything, yeah. yes. So I think that the biggest thing, at least for me with awkwardness, and by the way, I have so been in that room, in that situation, I, when you break down awkwardness, I think a lot of it comes from not having a goal in place. What I mean by that is if you're walking to an event and you're thinking, I've got to make it worth it, and that's actually most events, right? If you're going to a networking event or a barbecue or a party or a meeting, you're like, I'm not at home watching Netflix. I better make this worth right. my while, right? I got to make it worth putting on the makeup or like strapping myself into these banks. I got to make this worth it. That's one goal. But the other goal is, what is my purpose? So the biggest mistake is when you walk into a room and you're kind of like that wide-eyed effect of where do I stand, who do I talk to, what do I do? 
adding purpose to your movement is actually one of the easiest ways you can get rid of that first initial awkwardness. Mm -hmm. So the very first thing that you want to do um, when you get into an event is you want to go to where I call uh, a treasure line or a, a gold spot. And this is where all that treasure is waiting for you. The rookie mistake is when you walk into a room and you stand right when people enter the room. So this is the rookie mistake. People get into the room, right, and they're like, hmm, get my name tag, put away my coat, and stand right at the front trying to get someone else who's new. Right. The problem is when you walk into an event, your emotions are at their highest. Your adrenaline's at their highest. Mm. And typically when people walk in, they have to go to the bathroom, they want to get something to drink, they want to get something to eat. So whatever you do, do not stand in that start zone. Okay. So as soon as you go in, your number one goal is to get past the start zone, right? Get into the event. The very best place to stand when you're at an event is right as people exit the drink line. Okay. And that could be even at a party, wherever someone leaves the bar. And that's because, think about it psychologically. When you're getting your drink, that's like, mm. you, it's kind of like a security mm -hmm. thing, right? Whether it's coffee, tea, wine, whatever it is. Once you turn to face the room and you have your drink in hand, that's when you're like, oh my goodness, I better have someone to talk to. If you're standing right when people turn to face the room, you're actually providing them with social relief. Mm. Because what happens is you're solving the problem of who do I talk to? Because the moment they face the room, your opening line is, hey, how's the wine? How's that cocktail? How's that tea? Hey, what brings you here? Hey, nice to meet you. So it's actually not just how you approach, it's putting yourself in a position where you become a social savior. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the best places to stand. So that would be the very first thing I would say. Okay. And the second one, if you can do it, is something that I call the offer mentality. The offer? The offer okay. mentality. So back in the day when I was first building my business, I went to all these conferences, right? And there was one conference that I had to go to that wasn't in my industry. It wasn't in my niche. So I wasn't going to build business. I wasn't going to pass out business cards. I was just going to help a friend. And so I went thinking to myself, how can I make it so that other people are having a really good time to help my friend out? Mm. I ended up having the best time I had ever had at a conference. And I realized it was because I had a subtle shift. In previous networking events or conferences, I would go in asking. I needed things, right? I wanted business, I wanted to connect on LinkedIn, I wanted a business card. I was going with an ask mentality. Whereas this conference, I wasn't looking for anything. I was literally going thinking to myself, how can I make sure this person has a nice time, a nice conversation? Can I connect them with someone I know? That offer mentality in a weird way actually got me more business. Even though they weren't in my business, people were so happy to talk mm. to me, happy to chat. So that's sort of the second thing is what makes us awkward is when we feel like we're begging. You know, we're, yeah. we're in this scarcity mindset of there's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, do I have enough time? Do I have enough? Do I look cool enough? Do I fit in here? Do I belong here? That's all scarcity mindset. If you go in with more of an offer mentality of I have enough. I have enough to give, I have enough conversation to give, I have enough interest to give, mm -hmm. how can I just give? I think that fundamentally changes it so that it's not about you anymore. And so the awkwardness kind of goes away. Mm. What if you don't feel like you have enough to give? Mm. Do you fake it? So I fundamentally, <laughs> I do not believe in faking it till you make it. Which by the way, my entire career, I tell myself, Lisa, you need to fake it till you make it. And then when I heard you say it, I'm like, please tell me more. Yeah. Like, I'd love to know something that I've been doing wrong <sighs> this whole time. I know. And so fake it till you make it kind of entered like the cultural zeitgeist yeah. at one point. And everyone was saying it, right? Yeah. Like everyone was saying it. And yeah. women would be like, fake it till you make it. And I'm like, why are you telling yourself to be fake? Ah. Right? So 
what, huh. the words we use are very powerful. And I can I give you a scientific study that I love? A hundred percent. I love your scientific okay, so studies. Okay, so this study is like uh, they had participants enter a dark room. And imagine this. You enter a dark room. You're blindfolded. Okay. And the researcher gives you a bowl of yogurt. Okay. And he says, here's a bowl of strawberry yogurt. I'd like you to eat this yogurt, and then I'm going to ask you about its strawberry flavor. Okay. okay. <clears throat> I've so been primed now. Okay, yep. So you're eating your yogurt, right? And you're eating it, and most of the participants rated this yogurt as having a nice strawberry flavor. Of course, there was a catch. I'm sure you could guess. <laughs> yeah. The yogurt was actually chocolate. <gasps> That's amazing. Okay. okay. And what happened was is they told the brain you're about to have yeah. strawberry yogurt. So the brain actually tasted strawberry yogurt. The words that we use are incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to psych yourself up for an event by saying, fake it till you make it, fake it till you make it, you're telling yourself to be fake. And you and I both mm -hmm. know that when you come across someone who's like, hi, it's so good to meet you. Oh my God, love your earrings. That you can just smell it, sense it, taste it. And you don't want to be around that person. Mm -hmm. So if you're setting yourself up to be fake, it actually, it's mm -hmm. almost impossible for you to get into authentic, real, deep, connecting discussions and relationships because you've primed yourself for it. And priming is incredibly important because I think that most of us throw away our words. For example, I used to write emails to people and invite them to a meeting next week or a call next week. That's actually a missed priming opportunity because every time I open my calendar and I see meeting with Lisa, I'm like, oh, a meeting. What if you changed your calendar invites to say creative goal session with mm. Lisa? That means that every time I open my calendar up to see that, I'm primed to think, oh, I have a creative goal session with Lisa. One, that makes me much more excited to meet with you. Two, it actually changes the way, the perspective that I'm bringing to this meeting. And lastly, you're actually setting yourself up for more success mm -hmm. because you've asked for what you want. So I would say before you walk into an event, if you're not feeling it, right? Well, number one, can you say no? Saying no is always an option. Okay. It is not worth going to a networking event or a party if you are having a bad day. I don't believe in faking okay. until you make it, right? So that's number one is can you say no? Yeah. Number two, what is your priming recharge? What is your pre-performance ritual? Athletes have pre-performance rituals. Mm -hmm. Musicians have pre-performance rituals. Why don't we? Hmm. Right? And this could be anything from watching inspiring YouTube videos on YouTube. This could be calling a really funny or inspiring friend. This could be doing a meditation. This could be doing a social meditation. So you have to have those things that you prime yourself just like an athlete. Because every time you interact with someone, that could be an opportunity. Could be an opportunity to meet the love of your life. Could be an opportunity to make an incredible business, op mm. business opportunity. It could be a chance to meet a new best friend. And if you go into that thinking that you're going to fake it, you're not only wasting the opportunity, but you're lying to yourself about the realness that you could bring to that situation. So I totally hear the word fake and how that can set you up for failure. Yeah. So what do you do in a situation? Because when I use the word, it's basically, mm. there are many times I feel vulnerable mm. or many, many times I actually feel insecure. Yeah. And I tell myself, it's okay. So I don't judge myself for it. Yeah. It's okay. I like that. But you need to lead with confidence because no one is going to gravitate to someone yep. that isn't confident, especially in a business environment or even if you're dating. For sure. So 
I would say fake the confidence, mm. but I understand the word. So what would you suggest someone oh, does I like in that it. situation? Okay. So here's what I would say. So another study, um, uh, what they did was they wanted to look at anxiety. And when we're talking about awkwardness, I think that some very similar kind of feelings mm -hmm. in there are anxious, mm -hmm. awkward, um, shy. What this study did is they wanted to know that exact question is what do you do if you are anxious, but you got to fake it. Right. You've got, you got to find confidence. Right. They didn't use the word fake it. Right. So what they realized was that anxiety and anxiousness is a sister emotion to excitement. Mm. Okay. So when you think about when you're anxious, what happens in your body? You get little butterflies in your stomach. You start to kind of sweat. You get a little bit of dry mouth. You feel a little bit hot and sweaty. That's anxious. Your heart's like your heart's heart palpitations. Going. Now explain excitement to me. Yeah. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. In your body, yeah. anxiety and excitement feel very similar. The cousin or sister emotion, is there a way to reframe how you're viewing your own anxiety as potential excitement? And here's what they did. They took people and they had them uh, come into the lab and they gave them a task. And the task was cruel, in my opinion. What was it? They had them sing Don't Stop Believing into a karaoke machine. So they were rated for their accuracy of words, accuracy of notes, accuracy of lyrics, like oh high pressure. I know. Yeah. Okay. So see, I think about, I forget the numbers right. So they had them sing this karaoke song, but they had three different groups. Okay. The first group walked in, sung the song, done. Control group. Second group walked in and they had to say, I'm anxious out loud and then sing. And the last group had to say, I'm excited and then sing the song. That's it. No, no prep. No mental nothing, just saying those words. Of course, the I'm excited group outperformed, outsung, and actually enjoyed the experience more than the group that just said, I'm anxious. This is, I think, such good news. It means that we are in control of how we view our own anxiety, our own awkwardness. The opening line of this book, which by the way, when I first submitted this book to my publisher, my whole introduction was about, you know, science and data and, you know, all these impressive things. And she's like, Vanessa, this isn't you. That's amazing. She's like, can you start with something more vulnerable? She's like, what's the thing that you're most afraid of that readers are going to see about this book? And I'm like, I'm afraid that they're going to read this book and think, why would I learn about charisma from an awkward person? She's like, that's exactly why they want to learn from you. So the opening line of the book is, my name is Vanessa and I'm a recovering awkward person. It's the most vulnerable thing I could think of. And instead of for years in my business, I hid it. Mm. I hid it mm. under the guise of being an expert, a scientist, a journalist. And the moment that I began to put my awkwardness forward as a flip side where I view my awkwardness as a very powerful vulnerability, I do not view my awkwardness as a liability anymore. Mm. And I would say the same thing. If you're anxious or you're nervous or you're lacking confidence, what is the flip side to that? Is it that your anxiousness could be excitement? Use that adrenaline. Is it that your awkwardness could be a real vulnerability to find other fellow recovering awkward people? Right. That was why this book did well. I think it was that opening line. That was why in my videos, I decided to put my awkwardness forward. It's the same thing. I don't want you to fake it till you make it. I want you to show up anxious and awkward and learn how to use it. 
And that is what gravitated me towards you in the book yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Because you almost don't, you don't want to look up to someone saying they've got it all, they're perfect. Right. I want to look at the awkward person and say, how did she get out of it? Yeah. Because clearly she's, it's worked once. Right, right. And every time I do it, it works again and again. Right. So the funny thing is, for a long time I was trying to grow my business, trying to grow my brand, and trying to be the expert, the expert, mm -hmm. have it all together, be perfect, be Wonder Woman. And it wasn't until I started to learn that actually it was the opposite of that. And I learned it really silly. I was posting on Instagram and I posted a picture of me surfing. Not well, but me surfing. Me up, standing up. Okay. And the funny thing is the photographer for the little surf school had two pictures. One of me surfing and the very next one was of me face planting into the water. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, this isn't real. I'm going to post the face plant. So five minutes later, I posted the face plant. The face plant, of course, got so many more likes, so many more reach outs. And I realized then and there, actually, mm -hmm. that photo, I was like, what am I doing on Instagram? Like, what am I doing with my brand? Like, why am I trying to hide the falls? Everything you see, everything you do is so 100% transparent, authentic. You can you call yourself like the recovering awkward person. I mean, you just own all of it, which I freaking love. You know, like, I have to say, like, I went through a, probably a decade of cover-up, of, like, trying to hide and trying to pretend and trying to fake it, and it was exhausting. I, I actually finally was like, I'm going to just be transparent because I'm too tired to fake it. <laughs> And who knew, who knew that would be a game changer in my career and my relationships? Like, I wish I could tell you, I woke up one morning, I had a Brene Brown moment, and I decided I'm going to embrace my vulnerability. I'm going to be transparent. But I was so tired of trying to hide my awkwardness. Mm -hmm. I was so tired of trying to pretend being an extrovert to be likable. And so I was like, I'm done. I, I'm just done. And I think that that came from this weird cycle. I don't know if this ever happened to you where you try to be something you're not. So you try, like for me, I, I try to be a fake out extrovert, outgoing, right? You fake being an extrovert, you fake being outgoing, you show up at a networking event or a party and people don't even like that. And then you're like, wait, I'm trying to be something I'm not. And people don't even like that. So what's the point? And what actually was happening, I didn't realize this till many years later, is people could sense that fakeness. And research shows that we can smell out a fake smile. We can sense out, we can sense um, a sense of cover up or hiding something. We're actually quite adept at spotting lies, at least intuitively. And so I think the relief was actually, um, I'm so ready for something else. I love that. And this something else has led you into writing Captivate, I, which is like, Honestly, one of my favorite books on the planet, and you already know this. Um, but I actually, so I want to dive deeper into what you were just saying, because you were saying, you know, we hide, right? We hide the things we're uncomfortable about. We try to put, especially if we're going on a first date, or if we've got a job interview, or, you know, whatever it is, we try to put our best, show up as our best. Now, when you're going to a job interview, you can choose the best clothes, you can choose your favorite outfit, you can fake the smile, and you can walk in and try and say all the things you think you should say. Same with a date. But when you're at home, A, there's less that you can hide unless you use one of those Zoom blurs in the background or those fake backdrops. And actually there's some science on this. This came out in March, 2020, which I found very helpful. And they looked at a fake background, so a virtual background, a plain wall, 
or a real room? Can you guess which one um, across the board was ranked uh, the most favorable? Can you guess? Most favorable. I would say virtual background. So a real room by leaps and bounds. And by, by the way, I got this wrong too. And then second is a blank wall and then last. And I mean, dead last is a virtual background. Now here's Here's where this gets interesting. And I, as soon as I, I was very surprised with this, and then as I began to think about it, I realized why. So what we don't realize with video calls, we think they're easier in some ways than real life. We're like, oh, I can like wear my slippers. And like right now I'm in full on athletic shorts because I know that you don't have to see them. I don't have to wear my Spanx today. <laughs> Woo! Like that's great, right? So I'm like, okay, that's easier. I'm barefoot in my shorts. So I think that's easier. And then I think, oh, you know, like it's just a video call. I hear that a lot. It's just a video call. But here's the problem. When we talk about interaction, it's actually more cognitive load to go on a video call. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is in real interaction, we're getting lots of feedback loops. You're making eye contact with me. I'm making eye contact with you. Right now, I can see you nodding down there, but actually I am not making eye contact with you. I'm making eye contact with the camera. And so I am working extra hard to have faith that you are seeing my eye contact, but actually you're down there. And that happens a lot, right? Like on every computer screen, no matter how big it is, the camera is slightly off center from eyes. So already you're adding a huge barrier to the oxytocin feedback loop, which is, and I love oxytocin. Where is she? She's right on my wall. <laughs> how much? These are my three favorite chemicals. So oxytocin is the chemical connection. So already we have a barrier to connection, right? Like the loop is not quite there. Second, our brains are working really hard to do what's called proto-conversation, which is a great word. It's basically what's happening underneath this conversation. So how many video calls start like this? Oh, uh, hi. 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 Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's been good. It's been, yeah, pretty good. How about you? And like, there's this very weird awkwardness. You're not able to handshake. You're not able to make eye contact. And so your brain is working extra hard to overcome all of those things. Or you have someone who goes, hi, I'm so happy to be here. And they don't sound happy at all. <laughs> they sound so unhappy. Like I do, I do a lot of video calls. I always have, but now I'm especially doing them a lot. And like my favorite is when someone's like, yeah, um, great to see you all. Great to have you all here. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest fake lie I've ever seen. And so you, you feel really unwelcome when really what they're saying is, man, video calls suck. Mm. They might actually be happy to see you. What they're actually saying with their body, their nonverbal is giving away is, gosh, another video call, another video call. Mm. So that our brain is actually working way harder on a video call and a virtual background adds one mm. more dimension hard. So I love that you and I both have a real background behind yeah. us. It's a little bit of a set. Actually, you know, I do work on this desk. And that is helping our viewers be like, whew, at least we know where she is. Interesting. If it's, a, if it's a virtual background, the brain is always like, what's going on back there? What? Hey, what's back there? And then, like, you know, someone makes a big hand gesture and you see just, like, a glimpse <laughs> of their window. Or, like, a glimpse of their child in the background. And you're like, ooh, I saw something real. Right? That's so, you're so true. Like, right? Like, I'm obsessed with seeing someone's real background because I want to be like, how messy is their living right. room? Let's see. Right. But that's actually, so <laughs> that's why I thought people were in more interested because it's like, oh, it shows personality, right? If like, if, if you, Vanessa, and Lisa, you were like, all right, 
switch off the cameras and let's all choose a virtual background. I'd be really interested to see what you choose because I think it shows a part of your personality. But I actually understand what you mean about seeing someone in a real space and it alleviates that one question mark. Okay, you actually bring up a really good point here. And whenever we're talking about human behavior, there's lots of subtlety. So let's get into this subtlety, which I love. So you said something super important that my choice Mm-hmm. of a virtual background is a lot about my personality, right? So there's two things at play. One is that your real background is saying things about your personality. Maybe not by mm-hmm. choice, maybe by choice. Like I love, I, you're surrounded by superheroes, which empowers me, which primes me, which tells me a lot about you. But a virtual background can also be moments of humor. Mm-hmm. It can also be moments of welcoming, welcoming. So I have three custom backgrounds that my team built for me. The first one, because I, occasionally I will use them in the right setting. So I have one that looks Do like a Do you have lab, them now? Right. Can you like click I, them on? I'm, yeah. This is this is my, my branding one. Okay. All right. See it? Okay, ready. Oh, all right. Very, very good brand. Yep. And here's my next one, which should be fine, which is just... A lab. A lab. Okay. Definitely you. Yeah. The next one. Can you, can you see what this is? I'm on the bachelor. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. So it really does show you your different personalities. Yes. And also I, I will often not use those for an entire call. So I'll use them to spice Mm. up a call. I might use them in the very beginning to make someone laugh. I might use them after a break if I'm teaching. And so I think that zoom background should be reserved for like attention moments. Like I want to engage, I want to teach something, but otherwise if you can, a real room is worth it. Okay. That's amazing. And for someone like if I'm looking at your room, it's very interesting, right? It's like, Oh, what is that saying about her? I see serotonin behind her. I see dopamine, right? Like I I get exactly who you are by these three photos that you have behind you. But what about like, if I want to um, give a certain signal. So let's say I'm going for a job interview. I prob- I don't know if it's a great idea to have this background or a terrible idea because they're going to be like, oh my God, she's got Wonder Woman in the background. She's a child. I'm not hiring her. What do I have to know about my background? What do I have to consider being the person that wants to give across a certain, um, a certain characteristic? Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So there's a couple things here that I, I think I don't agree with the average person on this. I think that I'm going to give some weird advice, which is, I think that interviewers are doing hundreds, if not thousands of interviews right now. They are so tired of having the same interview with the same gray wall background or the same boring green screen background. And so on the one hand, I actually think that your background can be a way to differentiate yourself. So you might have an opportunity there to be like, I can show, I can show, not tell. Maybe there's something about my work or my personality, you know, okay, yes, you have a Wonder Woman doll behind you and maybe someone will think that's childish, but maybe they'll actually remember that or they'll say, hmm, I wonder why she chose to have that. I guess like that's sort of her, her superpower personality. So you can use it, I think, as a way to wake up the brain. The other thing you can do is use it as a teaching material for you. So if you know that in the interview, you're going to be talking about a time where you experienced hardship, right? Like things like that come up all the time or a previous company you worked at or your university, why not have your degree behind you? Why not have a picture from a trip that you did that you organized yourself? Why not have uh, an award that you did? You know, I, I don't know if you can see it, but like this is one of my YouTube awards. Oh. And actually um, you're um, from uh, Tom's podcast downstairs in my other film studio. I have my Impact Theory Awards. That's amazing. 
Yeah, they're in my office. And so, and that's great. And people bring them up and talk about them. Also, you're going to have in an interview, no matter how structured it is, a little bit of banter, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're worried about small talk, you're setting, I call these context cues. Context cues are the perfect conversation starters. So instead of how are you, don't ask that one, where are you from? You've answered a million times before. You can say, oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's Wonder Woman. And what's that little pink doll? Is that a, is that anime? Is that manga? Right. We can talk about either they can talk about your background or you can talk about theirs. And so I have like all kinds of weird props like in my office that I'll bring up randomly and different things because I know that it's going to give us a context cue. So I would say your background is actually a hidden asset. That's, I love that perspective. And the question actually is that little Teddy that you just held up. Did, did you already have it? Like how much should you dress quote unquote your background versus no, this is the real me. Like, do you think that I'm always the person that's put your honest foot forward because at least they're judging me on my honesty. And if they don't like Wonder Woman, then to be honest, screw you. I'm not coming, you know, I, then we, we don't mesh. You're not, yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly. Okay. So just like, would you consider it fake or lying if you put on makeup before a job interview? No. In fact, you're getting for a job interview, you're highlighting your best features, right? Like you're not showing up as you wake up in the morning, right? It's the same thing with your background. Yes. Is it more authentic to have your living room as it was this morning after breakfast or like before you went to bed? Yes, that could be considered more authentic. But it's the same thing of not waking up and then hopping on a video call. Yes, that's more authentic, but it's not putting your best self forward. So yeah, I say your house is your other face. I mean, tr truly, yeah. right? Like now your background is an integral part of your first impression. We talked about first impressions, I think, in our last interview. And now it's we've, we've added in a layer, added on a layer. Your first impression is your nonverbal. It's your facial expressions. It's your voice tone. Um, it's our symbols or our emblems. And now it's also our context cues. What about your Zoom background? What is that saying about you? If you're super conscientious, I highly recommend putting a bookshelf behind you with your true favorite books, authentic favorite books, color-coded, right? Like what a better way to show that you're highly organized with what you really read. Or let's say that it's, it's your family home, you're in the dining room and you do have two kids and you have one piece of their art and then maybe your degree on your wall and then like a beautiful plant that you have been you know, growing from a seed. Those are all great context cues and they're still you, but it's like putting makeup on your house and it, mm. it's just as important as your face. I love that. Um, and I actually want to go back to something that you had said like below, right? Because a lot of us now, we only see from the waist up. Um, a lot of the time, yeah, I'm like wearing shorts. I've got flip-flops on. Sometimes I'm, I've got like a, my bikini bottom on if I've just been outside trying to get some vitamin D. Like, But the thing is, it does affect how I feel, which means mm. that it affects how I show up on a call so part of me is like is that like should we completely dress up in moments that we want to really influence our um you know our, our, our perform i don't like to say performance but the way we show up yeah there is science on this um they found that when they put people in lab coats even when they're not doctors they're not researchers <laughs> they act more professionally. When people dress more formally, they rise to the occasion. So there's a fine line here is, yes, like for example, I'm wearing my athletic shorts, but I'm wearing earrings, which I don't ever wear unless I'm on video, right? Like, I'm, I, like I never, I'm wearing a bra for you, Lisa. Like, it's a big, <laughs> it's a really I'm wearing good one for you, girl. <laughs> like a bra signals to my brain, girl, we're doing something important because I'm never in one otherwise. 
Like that's enough. Like that's enough for my brain. If I'm in earrings and a bra, my brain's like, bring it, bring it, bring your A game. I don't need to be in heels. So you have to know for you what's your triggers. I'm gonna give you one other secret little tip. So not only am I wearing an earring and bras for bra for you, I'm also wearing perfume. So one thing that I have noticed, yeah, in um, social distancing is so I've I've stopped using my purse and I've stopped wearing heels, right? Mm. And the idea of wearing heels on a call like this, I'm in a standing desk, which is really important for my, oh. for, I notice it affects my vocal power. Um, but if I'm in heels, oof, I start thinking about my feet, I get distracted, I want to sit down, I slump, I lean. So I was like, what's another thing that I haven't been using? And I realized I haven't worn perfume in, in so long. I, I, just, I don't go out. So now whenever I do podcasts or webinars or trainings, I always put just a little bit of perfume um, on my pulse points for me just so I can feel like I've brought my A game, my A game. And smell is so important for our creativity and our learning. It's why hotels spend- Oh, sorry, this guy's come outside my window with- (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, excuse me, we're filming. And you can quietly for one hour. Thank you so much. Ah, see, in fact, you want to talk about having to deal with the realities of doing an interview when working from home. My gardener had the bl- air blower outside. Okay. Okay. By the way, like that's, we should keep that in because it's so real because that's going to happen in your interviews, right? That's going to happen in your trainings. And the way that you handle that is actually scientifically proven to be amazing. And I'm going to give you two oh, examples. Yes. Mm-hmm. So one study they did, um, they had um, students listen to recordings. And in the first group, they listened to a recording of, I believe it was a job interview. So a man answering questions about himself and it went great. He answered a couple questions and, and the listeners rated him on, you know, competence and likability and warmth, things that interviewers listen for. In the second recording, it was the exact same recording, exact same man. But at the very end of the interview, he spills his coffee. You can hear him spill his coffee and um, he ruins his suit. That version of the interview got higher ratings than the first version. And so I think we like to think that we should show up perfect. And this is, you know, going back to the very beginning of the interview when I talked about I was just so tired of hiding. When I stopped hiding and I started saying I'm in bike shorts and like I don't wear bras and I'm super awkward and that Zoom background's backwards, like whatever it was, like mistake. <laughs> Instead of like agonizing over it or trying to prevent it from happening, I realized that actually it's so real that people go, whew, she's human. (laughs) And the other issue here, and this is really important, a very specific tip for both dates and interviews. Are you ready? It's going to surprise you. Okay. So So this is called the other shoe effect. This was a game changer in the way that I do both interviews and meetings. So the biggest worry for people on dates or on interviews is the one bad thing about their past. And everyone has a perceived one bad thing about their past. Maybe for someone, it's a bad relationship. Maybe for someone, it was getting fired from a previous job or a bad grade or whatever it was. And so we all have this kind of like this, oh, this secret thing that we hold. And it makes us very nervous. We're worried. When is it going to come out? Is it going to come out? Is it going to be a deal breaker? So not only does that make us nervous, the other person also is thinking, what's wrong with this person? And this is called the other shoe effect. In other words, when is the other shoe going to drop? And so in a really good date or a really good interview, the longer the date goes on, the more the other person is thinking, what's wrong with this person? Why is he single? 
why is this person not hired? And they get very distracted by that. And you go, oh God, is that thing going to come up? Is that thing going to come up? Is that thing going to come up? Should I bring it up? Should I bring it up? Maybe I shouldn't bring it up. And so when that disclosure, whatever that disclosure is, comes towards the end of an interview, the interviewer rates that interviewee worse. When it comes up at the beginning of an interview, the interviewer rates that person better. In other words, if you have something that's making you very nervous, you're better off just dropping the shoe. Not like right when you get on the Zoom call, but in the first, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, or I would say the first half of the interview, you are actually better at proactively dropping the shoe, so to say, because it's going to come out and at least it's not going to distract them from your charisma. Oh my God, that's amazing. I really love to live in the world that is versus the world that I wish it should be. And so you were the one that actually told me that stat that I read at the beginning, that the internet can have a 1.2 second delay, can actually perceive you as less nice. Um, And so I really want to talk about that because it's really, like, I wish it wasn't true, but I live in the world where it is. So now I want to go, okay, Vanessa Van Edwards, help. How on earth do I compensate let's say for that 1.2 second delay because if i'm not being perceived the way i want to now i need to know how can i accurately be perceived the way my intention is so how do i compensate that yeah so two things here that we should be very aware of in video calls again the way that it really is not the way that we wish it could be which is uh first what you mentioned that a 1.2 second delay uh, makes you seem less likable and the reason for this by the way is because our brain is again trying to read the other person. So if I make a joke and then I don't see you laugh until delay, I'm like, oh, and then that's a delay. And so it's actually, it's, it's, the problem is it creates incongruency where my face and my words aren't matching. And so that makes the other person feel like you're lying. That's what happens. You have this incongruence in your face. So um, one is um, I'm a big fan of if it's really delayed in the first few seconds, I say, hey, let's just hop on just audio. There is no reason that you have to stay on video. And you're actually doing yourself and them a huge favor of getting off a bad video stream. So that's the first thing. <laughs> the second thing is if you're going to do that, you're if you're going to stay on video because you have to, know that there's a delay. And then slow down your speaking pace. So I'm a very fast talker. But if I know I'm on a really big video feed, I think I'm slowing it down so you can kind of see how that goes. So a couple weeks ago, I did a presentation for about 17,000 people. And I knew, I knew there was going to be a big delay. And I had translators going. So it was going out to 17,000 people in probably about 10 countries. It was a training for Amazon. And I knew that they were simultaneously translating me. And so I immediately, I I thirded my presentation. So it was a lot shorter, I had less to get through. And I worked really hard on just slowing down my pace, still being natural, but just slowing it down, taking more pauses to think, taking more pauses to make my point. And this really helps. Now I'm going to go back to my mm-hmm. regular speaking speed. This really helped align my words a little bit closer with my nonverbal. So if you're going to do that, at least slow down. The second thing is, and this is so weird, the other reason why we get Zoom fatigue, and Zoom fatigue is real, right? Like it's it, video calls take endurance and stamina. You have to train for them just like you do a marathon <laughs> or lifting weights. One of the reasons for this is because it triggers the fear part of your brain. 
and a very specific part of your brain. And that's because when we are on video call, now Lisa and I both have a good setup. So Lisa and I are about, uh, I would say Lisa, I'm about maybe two feet away from my camera. How far are you from your camera? Yeah, about yeah. three, probably. Close yeah. to three. Okay, perfect. perfect. So total, we're about five to six feet away, which is perfect because this is a study of proxemics. Proxemics is the distance between people. And there are four different zones of proxemics, the public zone, the social zone, the personal zone, and the intimate zone. So five to six feet away, perfect. That's called the personal zone. When you're chatting with someone, you're getting to know them, you're safe with them, you're in that, that personal zone. When you're in an intimate zone, you're doing one of two things. One, you're about to kiss, or two, you're about to get an argument or a fight. Mm -hmm. So when people get really heated, they, you know, have you ever seen guys like, what, 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 what? And they get really close to the camera. That was probably a horrible visual. I, I apologize for everyone watching. It <laughs> was amazing. You know, like they, they like, they tilt their chin like that, like, mm, 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 like that. And then they like get really close. And then like, you see guys who are like this close and you're like, are they going to make out <laughs> about to argue with each other? And that is because as a territorial cue, we get really close and we're trying to threaten the other person. Mm. So if you, if your camera set up where you're really close to the camera, like your face is in it and you can just see your face. Yeah. It triggers. Isn't that uncomfortable, Lisa? Hmm. I don't know, because it's you, not as uncomfortable, but if it was a stranger... You want to make out. Be... <laughs> you know I love you. <laughs> <laughs> this interview is going in a totally different direction. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, in fact, I actually want to stop this right now, though, and say we connected just now because we're good friends because we just did that we both went forward we made a joke like i actually really felt super connected from with you just now so i know you were yeah. probably saying about it being threatened but going back to the kissing i actually felt like me and you were just very um yeah connected and intimate in like the most beautiful way yeah i actually i totally agree and it can go either way right so if you're on a work call it often will go in a negative way, right? Like it's it's like you're you don't want to be that close to your colleague or your boss. And so what the reason I say this is a really easy fix is you just need to make sure, and I I if we can, like everyone should be showing like at least this much of their body, mm. right? So like a little bit more of your chest and shoulders so you can see children movement, so you can see the top of hand gestures. Like I don't need to have your hands in the shot all times, but at least when you're making a gesture, you can kind of see it. So not just this, because you're actually triggering the other person's fight or flight when you do that. That's fascinating. Um, makes complete sense. Talk to me actually about hand gestures, um, because I think it was you that told me the study about TEDx. And so if you can quickly mm -hmm. explain that, it's so fascinating. That stuck with me when I heard you say it um, and why it's important. Yeah, sure. So yeah, that was our study. We uh, wanted to know if hand gestures matter. And one thing that the study research is very clear on is that visible hands make us feel more relaxed. So I, I start every single one of my video calls the same way. And please, please do this, whether it's a job interview, an online date, a call with your friends. I start every single video like this. Hey, morning. Good to see you. Mm. Hey, team. And the reason for this is because um, at, from from our kind of um, evolutionary instincts, when we see a stranger, we want to know if they're carrying a rock or a spear. And so if you see my hands empty, it's like I'm a friend, not foe. And also a hand is an intention cue. We use our hands to point. So when I point there, you really want to look there. We use our hands to greet someone, to wave or to handshake. Um, and also it's they are our deadliest weapons. So we are very aware of where someone's hands are and what they're doing. So I always knew that visible hands were important. And I noticed that most TED speakers, the best TED speakers, they come out on stage the same way. They usually walk onto stage 
and they show their hand, 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 friend, 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 friend. The second thing that we discovered in our study was that they also are using explanatory gestures. So they're speaking to their audience on two tracks. They say their words and they outline them with their hands. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I were to say, today I have a really, really big idea. It's huge. Your brain is like looking at my fingers. You're like, what? Like that doesn't look very big at all. And that's because your brain looks to hand gestures to get confirmation, explanation, highlight. And so when you're in a video call, if I'm really close to the camera and I'm making gestures that are really important over here, your brain can't see them versus when I'm here and I'm saying, you know, Lisa, let's talk about um, three different phases. So phase number one is this one. And phase number two is this one, phase number three. You immediately can follow exactly where I am and it's, it lightens your cognitive load. Mm. So if you're explaining highly technical concepts or you want your team to remember something and you're just using your words, it's like taking away pictures. Mm -hmm. We always mm -hmm. love to see the pictures. And so adding your hands adds a dimension to your communication that helps your listener. That's so fascinating. I am like going to be the beast on Zoom after this meeting, after this interview. Um, so talk to me then about dating online. So if you're just starting to date someone, right? It's, um, you have the like, ah, oh, first date. They say you shouldn't sleep with someone on the first date, right? Rules of the second date. So there's like these, uh, these unspoken or all spoken rules that you, people choose to follow or not. Online, it's a whole freaking new game because there's no opportunity to then see that person um, in real life, at least right now. So what are the things that people should be looking for, um, bearing in mind, when do you take the camera to the bedroom? Like all of this is actually real that I, I wouldn't even have a clue where to start. And that's not because I've been married, but because it's such a new world. Yeah, so here's the good news. I think this is the best opportunity for dating that's come since dating apps. And the reason for that is because we've thrown out all the rules. You can't go out to dinner. There's no in-person meeting for a long time. You can't test physical chemistry for a long time. Mm -hmm. You get to create your own rules. Now, this is only going to last for the next few months. I think that actually rules are going to be start norms and rules are already being created, but we have this very magical window where you can create your own rules. And so what I want you to think about here, and this is what I've been talking to all my dating students about is you should create your dating rules based on your personality. So if you're an introvert, you want to pick rules of engagement that work for your personality. If you're an extrovert, you want to design rules of engagement that work with your personality. So I'll, I'll take a, a really easy example. So let's say that you're an extrovert and you are desperately missing people. You can make it so that you immediately find a game app that uses a little bit of video. So as soon as you meet someone on a dating app or you're introduced to someone, you can say, hey, one of the first things I like to do with people to get, get to know them is play on this app. And that way it's very extroverted, it's very expressive, it's very engaging, and you're hopping on video right away. So I know a lot of extroverts tell me, you know, I kind of know within the first few minutes of being on video, I don't wanna spend five days chatting, I'd rather just hop on video. Cool, create that as a rule of engagement and find a way to make that natural. Hopping from dating app to video call, big jump. Hopping from dating app to game app, less of a jump. Hopping from dating app to sending a video, and now I'm getting to my introverts. So let's say for introverts, you're like, oof, a video call is too much, too fast, and like playing a game app, not a chance. I wouldn't even do that with my closest friends. But typically, introverts like to observe first or have 
prepared social interactions. So you might be better off leaving very short video messages where you're controlling the lighting. You can refilm it as many times as you want. It's very short. And so, you know, for that, for that one, your rule of engagement is pretty much on the first day. If you're interested in someone, you pop up in your app and you're like, Hey, just wanted to say hi. And I uh, can't wait to get to know you. Talk to you soon. Bye. That's it. In the hopes that they will also send one back. And if they don't, that should tell you something about them. And if they do, that should tell you something about them. So you get to create your own landscape here, whether that's gaming apps or sending a video or hopping on video. Um, I think that's the exciting part of what's happening right now and we should be taking advantage of it. That's fascinating. Um, You'd given us some conversation starters, coming on and waving, using your body language. I think that's amazing. Um, But there are a lot of other things that I just find like really weird. Sometimes there's um, an uncomfortable silence. For some reason on Zoom, Mm -hmm. it, it feels worse than when it's in person because maybe in person you can, you know, go and hug them or, you know, give them a hand gesture or, you know, something like that. But on Zoom, it's kind of like you're just staring at each other. Um, also, um, cues when they're not interested. Because if there is that, you know, 1.2 second delay that can change the way you're interpreting things, if I'm interpreting you to be uninterested in what I'm saying, how do I know that's actually accurate? Or how do I know that's the internet delay? Um, or how do I know, okay, they really are uninterested, you should hang up now. Yeah. So there's a lot, so that we could, we could talk about that for probably four hours, right? Like there's, there's so much in there, but what I'll say is I actually like using aids. It's the one thing that you, again, new opportunity, right? We're talking like wild west. You can do whatever you want on these zoom calls because there is no rules yet or in these video calls. Mm -hmm. So for example, it would be weird if you were on a first date and there was an awkward silence and then you were like, Hey, um, I have this box of conversation starters that I brought. Like that would be, they'd be like, um, what? Like who carries a box of conversation starters? But now, and I do this in my meetings, if you're on a video call with, for the first time with someone and you're chatting and there's a lull, you can say, Hey, I know this is so weird, but I have this like box I've been keeping here for conversation starters. Do you want to do one? People are so much more open-minded now than before because they've never done this before. And so you get to create the rules. So I would have a box of conversation starters right there. I would have a couple of fun props right next to you. I would have like an interesting drink. So like right now I'm drinking water. If I was actually dating, you can bet I would have some interesting drinks. So maybe like a smoothie that I made and I'd be like, oh, I'm drinking a smoothie. And that gives them a a little push to be like, oh, really? What kind of smoothie? Oh, you know, I love creating these really interesting drinks or like a unique martini. You actually can use your environment ahead of time, which you don't get to do in real life, right? In real life, you have to go to a restaurant or it's all like pre-prescribed and everyone has the same things they have to order. At home, you can have a fun drink. You can have a fun snack. You can say, hey, do you want to hop on um, video? We can make tacos together. Like what? You can you can do anything, right? And so also think about like creating learning together where maybe you watch something at the same time or, you know, you say, hey, I've been taking a sushi making class and I was going to make sushi for myself tonight. Do you want to join me for a virtual sushi date? You should order sushi and then I'll make some and then I'll, I'll show you how I, how I make it. It's a totally different game and that means you get to be super creative. So what I would say is like set yourself up for success, have props, have conversation starters, have things in your background that you know people are going to ask about. Like if you, by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to share a pet peeve. This is a a huge pet peeve of mine. So I was on a video call the other day and someone had, I won't say what it was because I don't want them to watch this, a (laughs) unique prop behind them. Okay. A unique prop. And I was like, 
oh, wow, what is that unique prop from? He was like, oh, that old thing. <laughs> it was from a trip I took back in the day. Why? Why would you set someone up to ask a question and then not reply with a freaking great story? So if you have something in your background or on your desk that you don't want someone to ask about and you don't have a great story ready, shame on you. Because that's actually, you're taking away a gift from them, right? Like I saw something in his background. I wanted to learn about him. And then he totally threw it away. And I was like, well, then why do you have it in your background? You shouldn't have that back there if you don't want to talk about it. And if you're tired of talking about things in your background, if you've overdone it on video calls, switch it out, friend. Switch it out. It's like wearing the same outfits every networking event. Switch it up.